0: hey this is kate welcome to two pastors take a walk and make a podcast
1: this is yolando and as always we're talking about what is astonishing us what we're thinking about and what we're preaching
0: you first my friend what is astonishing you on this gloomy monday morning
1: well you know for a week and a half i've been on this fast from the news just taking a break (laughs) yeah taking a mental health spiritual health break from the news um and i decided to end (laughs) that fast so that I could watch the impeachment trial, and I watched many, many hours—at least, at least ten hours, I think—of it. I, I watched uh, so a good, good deal of it, and uh, was so impressed um, with the impeachment managers. But beyond that, what uh, what occurred to me was um, a book that. I used in a church, gosh, I think it was my first church, almost 20 years ago. This church wanted to do a study of spiritual warfare. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't know much about spiritual warfare. And so I did a little research and as a church, we decided to read a book by Neil Anderson called The Bondage Breaker. It's kind of a basic whatever of spiritual warfare. But one of the things I've never forgotten, um, in that, from that book. So he's a a chapter, um, that says that spiritual warfare is less about a power encounter with the demonic, right? It's less about, um, uh, screaming and exorcisms and people falling on the floor and those kinds of wild things happening. He says, um, Spiritual warfare is less about a power encounter with the demonic and more about a truth encounter.
0: yeah,
1: it's just, it's, it's truth that um, exposes and expels the enemy. it's It's truth that um, causes the demonic to scatter or to uh, be weakened. And I was thinking about that uh, during the trial. I hadn't thought about that book in years, but it occurred to me, you know, and everyone was saying that um, um, former President Trump was going to be acquitted. um, And some were even saying, you know, the trial was a waste of time. But as I watched, I thought, no, what's happening is that people are telling the truth. There's some truth being told here. And that I think in the long run, It will help the country, whatever you think the enemy is doing, however you see the enemy at work um, in the country, in our politics, in our lives, in this season, one of the things that we, we have to be hopeful about, at least for me, is that when the truth is told, of course, everyone won't believe it but enough people will believe it that it will have a positive effect and so i'm walking away from that whole experience um more encouraged than i thought i would be
0: hmm. uh i mm, i don't even i don't have a lot of words to put around that experience but i i think that um what is astonishing me is not unrelated to what you're saying, although it might take a bit of digging to expose it. Um, What I have been astonished by this week is the news that broke about Ravi Zacharias, um, who is, um, I think if there are mainline folks listening, that might not be a name that's very familiar, but he was a huge figure in um, apologetics and in Mm -hmm. the evangelical world Mm -hmm. and sort of lifted up as kind of the last great defender of Christendom. Um, Mm -hmm. And if, if the term apologetics is unfamiliar to you, um, it is sort of the logic defense of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so there just was a, a time and, um, I, it it really bears no connection to the actual gospel, <laughs> but there was a time when there was a worldview which was that God was redeeming the world through the institutions and structures of Western civilization, and you know that sort of all of the established fields of authority, including um you know, uh academics if they were allowed to flourish christianity would become a respectable and irresistible um, philosophy of life so it would it, it would really be just a matter of um people uh in like intellectually um people with intellectual integrity would have to come to christ because apologetics, this you know, this logical argument of um, the gospel, as it was understood by people in these fields, like as I would say, like very different than my reading of actual scripture. <laughs> but whatever. Then um, it was a very sort of hierarchical, top-down, and this idea that um, you know, every every respectable institution in, I mean, like definitely America, but probably Western civilization in general was just um, ontologically Christian or could be, or should be, or would be. And everybody just needed if you did, if you rejected Christianity, it's just because you didn't understand what it was. And so there would be these great men and they were always men who would just come out and, and have, and, and debate, like debate people who were not Christian. And the idea was you would just you know, demolish like people would have no choice but to come to Christian Christianity, which I mean, again, I would just say like that's such a colonized version of the example of Jesus in Scripture. Jesus is not working through any yeah. institution or any hierarchy, any power structure, and in no way is Jesus, you know, demolishing or overwhelming or overcoming anyone. He is working at the margins. He is gathering an unlikely, disrespectful, disrespected, mm-hmm. powerless group of people. But he, but he's working these mighty signs that are showing that that power actually isn't where people have been taught that power is. And um,
1: doesn't the Apostle Paul say something like,
0: um, "We didn't come you to wise. you. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't come to you
1: with wise words, but with the foolishness of the gospel." Right.
0: Right. So I mean, I really think to me, I, uh, the, I mean, obviously, we love God with all our heart, with all our strength, with all our soul, and all our mind. So, so there is a a beauty, an intellectual beauty in, in the gospel, in the revelation Absolutely. of God. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not it, it it's not you know the the opposite extreme, which is just some like fanciful. Like what's the spaghetti monster god? Like just yes. some crazy thing it's, that people. It's not the it's rejection
1: nothing. of intellect.
0: No, at all. But it is not an intellect that conforms to the established power structures of the world, many of which are deliberately going about um in, to towards anti-gospel ends. Right, like the the power structures, especially in America, are are made to support and and build up the empire and the gospel is in opposition to the empire, be that the Egyptian empire, the Roman empire, or the American empire, not against Americans, but against any power structure that sees some people as worthy of life and others as cogs to be used and disposed of. So, and, and any uh, got any power structure that says people Can deserve life if they earn it. And if they do not earn it, then their lives are no longer valuable. So, anyway, whatever. I'm just saying the whole field of apologetics is problematic in general for me, but it makes sense. It makes sense that it popped up and really got um, popular in the 1950s and 1960s. And it makes sense that it was always men, you know, debating men in front of an audience. And it was all you know, very public, like nobody was praying in their prayer classes. It's all very public. Anyway, but this guy, um, Ravi Zacharias was kind of the last great um, giant in this Mm -hmm. field. Um, And for years, um, there were whispers and there were accusations that he um, was um, abusing women sexually and he owned a lot of day spas in Atlanta which he was just very open about saying like I you know these are massage parlors but they're day spas but there's nothing to see here but whatever anyway but it turns out and there was one couple in particular that came forward and and shared like he sent us text messages requesting explicit pictures of the wife and she and her husband came forward and said this happened and it's not appropriate. And, and they were just massacred by his followers. And they ended up when I mean, they, the couple sued and they went to court and that there was a non-disclosure agreement that was signed by everybody, which is always an interesting <laughs> sign. Um, and then just, and he, he died in May. And so just recently more and more women have come and he, I mean, It was so, it was so bad um, that there just were lots of women who he was paying for sex and women who have accused him of rape. And he, obviously he went all over the world because that's part of the worldview that America will bring the gospel to developing third world countries. So he spent a ton of time in Malaysia and and other countries on the Asian continent. And so there's all kinds of accusations about the ways that he was involved with just hundreds of women, um, and you know, lots of nude photos of women, and 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 explicitly, he women are reporting that he, um, uh, sorry, my phone just went away. He he would report to them that um, they were his reward from God for being faithful. Um, so and and he would say to them, "You can't if you tell anyone about this." you will be responsible for um, the damnation of thousands of souls because you will damage my reputation and my reputation is, you know, paramount to all these people who have come to Christ. through So like, it just, um, and it was, you know, every, I am not saying that Ravi Zacharias was a garbage human. I'm not saying that I am not saying that the Lord didn't use him because, and I would say this about myself, you know, that's just the offensive recklessness of grace um, Mm. that God can make a donkey Mm. talk. God can use me. I mean, you know, like Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not God. So, so I'm not saying that there's no, nothing good and nothing redeeming in his life. I'm not saying that, but everything that people said was true. And then you go back and you look again and and, it it all makes sense, you know. You realize like how this was bright in plain sight, but but no one could see it, or or people could see it, but everyone around them was saying they couldn't see it. And so, I mean, just to your point of like, you know, the spiritual warfare is not about. We say this all the time, like it's not Linda Blair in. The exorcist like levitating from her bed with her head spinning around. It's not that. It is much more ordinary. It is the fact that there is something egregiously destructive right in plain sight. And everybody looks at it and goes like, no, that's not happening, or no, that's not bad, or don't don't, don't be so hysterical. I, you know, and and that's so um, hard to try to speak the truth when everyone around you. When many people around you are saying, "A, that's not true," and "B, your, um, you know, your reaction to what's happening is hysterical," and and I mean, I, I see it with the with everything surrounding the riot and on, on the Capitol, with everything surrounding people's um, emotions regarding impeachment that that people are saying, you know, this this didn't happen. And, and if you think it did happen, or if you have feelings surrounding the justice or injustice of the situation, like that's just hysteria. Certainly that happened to women who, who tried to speak of their real experiences with Ravi Zacharias, that the world said back to them, you don't know, like you don't know the truth of your own experiences, your, I mean, it's, um, And so I I do think this idea that speaking truth, which we can speak in love, it's not about being ugly, but just speaking the truth in love will, will provoke such a backlash because it reveals just how corrupt and decaying these pillars of the culture are. um, And people just can't can't face life knowing that it really is this bad which is why for so long we've told people of color that they that their own experience of life was not valid not just for you know white people aren't telling people of color your experience of life isn't valid for me white people are telling people of color no you don't even understand your own life and I'm telling you that you're not experiencing injustice, you are not in pain, you are not disadvantaged, you are not, you don't have any, you know, it's, It's. and it is spiritual warfare, but it, um, but it's as ordinary as, you know, having a cup of coffee in the morning. So how can this be the thing that's stealing and killing and destroying, because it shows up and just looks so benign and um the people who are wielding these weapons don't even understand that they're wielding them um so i I'm, I'm with you i just i mean i'm profoundly sad like everyone else like i'm not a huge fan of apologetics but i very much did not want to believe that ravi zacharias was one person in public and an entirely different person in private like i did not want to believe that and it's not that I mean, I understand that sin is a reality for everyone, but I just, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, it is devastating. It is devastating. Mm -hmm. And I also think the uncovering is necessary for healing and, and growth.
1: It is necessary and painful.
0: But I just, I mean, I, go ahead.
1: Well, I was just going to say one of the things that, um, The black community in America has been wrestling with um, over the past year or so is this whole situation with R. Kelly. So for years, Mm -hmm. people kind of whispered, okay, he likes um, underage girls. And and people used to say he likes really young women, right? And finally someone said, no, these are girls. These are Mm -hmm. girls. And at first, People were like, okay, that's just him and it's not a big deal. And as more came out, the Black community had to say, wait, we have been a part of supporting this. We have enabled this. We have heard these things for years. We kept buying the music, we kept supporting this artist, suspecting that these kinds of activities were taking place and then when it's really exposed and then people are, you know are angry but it has taken us a long time way too many years to get to the place where we're like okay now he needs to be held accountable
0: Yeah. And I think part of it is just the problem with putting people on pedestals, right? Like, so R. Kelly was on Mm -hmm. a pedestal. Donald Trump is on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. Ravi Zacharias is on a pedestal. I mean, goodness knows Barack Obama is on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. Like we put people on pedestals. And so then we begin to worship them. And Mm -hmm. then any, any um, truth that contradicts this false image of them that we have and it's not even like some people that are on pedestals are it's not that everyone we admire is actually living a double life but it just the reality is we're just not meant to think of people in that way like only god is meant to be worshiped and and other people you know this idea that that Ravi Zacharias said which is which is not untrue on, on one level this idea that if you tell people the truth about me thousands and thousands of innocent people are going to be hurt and um, people's faith in Jesus will be threatened. And again, like I I would argue that, you know, it it wasn't a, it wasn't a healthy and holy faith to, to be threatened, but he's not wrong. I mean, he's not Mm -hmm. wrong. And so, you know, that idea that when we have, when we say sort of, well, no matter what this person does, we need to just, we can't tell the truth about them because, because if, you know if they're not on their pedestal then the whole system will collapse just betrays that we we have a wrong understanding of of how God uses people um, and the kind of people that God uses to to bring about the kingdom and you know I mean and again like if we read our Bibles and didn't sanitize them and didn't turn them into comic book versions mm. then I mean it's right there I mean Abraham, not a good dude. I mean, like, everything about him wasn't terrible. But, you know, raped a slave and then sent her and his son away to die in the desert when he got a, a better one. I mean, not a good dude. And, you know, Jacob, not a good dude. And David, you know, raped a woman, had her husband murdered. Not I mean, you mm-hmm. can't put that guy in a pedestal. But also the Bible is totally clear that he was a man after God's own heart and that God made this everlasting covenant with him. And you you have to wrestle with both things. And I think for too long, the, the body of Christ has tried to deal with that tension by saying, sanitizing the stories. So not telling the parts of the stories that are hard or somehow saying like, well, David is a hero. So if David did these things, they couldn't have been bad, right? Which is kind of what happens with Ravi Zacharias. People say it's not true, but if it is true, it can't be bad. Right. And, and that's so internalized that you have him, you know, in, in the act of raping women saying like, no, 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 this is God's reward for me because I, you know, it's just, we're so deeply in bondage. Um, mm. And part of it is because I think so many Christians are still lusting after power and wealth as the world has it to give. And so we make these compromises that are destructive. I mean, the things that I hear people say about Christianity things that I hear people say about Jesus and it breaks my heart. And I, you know, you want to leap in and say, but that's not true. But you also, I'm like, but I understand that is your experience. That is your actual experience of what the church is. That is actually what you've been taught that Jesus is. Mm-hmm. And so to reject that you're not wrong because is not Jesus. It's just what's been presented to you with the Jesus label on it. So that's a sad, that's a sad thing. And then the question is, how can we go about being people who speak truth without rejecting those who are in bondage to lies? Like, how do we do that?
1: Well, I I think one, you speak the truth, knowing that it takes some people a long time to really hear you, just as it takes you a long time to hear some truth. Right. Like when I reflect on my own experience of coming to the truth in some areas of my life, was like, you know, I spent a lot of years fighting this before I finally said yes. And so I've got to um, give people that same grace for a, a learning curve, a listening curve to the truth. And so not only I, I think part of speaking the truth in love is speaking the truth in patience. Um because yeah, really you know, part of me wants to say it once and have you get it. <laughs>
0: right. Even right. though people labored with me for years mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. until I got it. But mm-hmm. I then yeah I I and I think also just having a really deep reverence for the reality of being in relationship with people like they're just people that are in our lives and and we kind of can't understand it and we just need to have some reverence for the holy mystery or or at least um and it's so hard it's so so hard it is so so hard but you know at least walk with the question of what if what if it is what if it is god's design for us to birth truth in one another right like mm-hmm. what what and you know and and if the view of the culture is just there are good people and there are garbage people and if you just destroy the garbage people then the truth will prevail that is definitely the view of the culture war on both sides mm-hmm. but the the call of the gospel is just much more offensively gracious than that and so um and and then i think the last thing is just really remembering and with fear and trembling, you know, Jesus's words about, you know, the beam and the speck, right? Like it's just so Uh Mm -hmm. easy. It's so easy to see where other people have sold out to a lie. And it is impossible to see how you've sold out to a lie. You cannot see that for yourself. So somebody has to tell you, So you have to be willing to be in relationships with people and really listen and that is just so hard. It is so, so difficult.
1: Yes, I have two more responses to that question. Uh, Number one, um, I think we must remember um, the words of the apostle that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, that Mm -hmm. people are not the enemy. People are not the enemy, and we so quickly fall into the them and us, right? That's number one. Number two, we have to have a deep trust in the unseen work of God in people's lives and in the culture. Um, I was reflecting in the Sermon on Sunday on a time when I was in seminary and I did several independent studies. And one independent study I did uh, was on the theology of my slave ancestors. I wanted to know what they thought about God. And so there have been a number of people who have taken slave narratives and looked for the theology. What did these people believe about God in the stories they told about their lives under slavery? And one of the things that I discovered is that um, slaves on this continent held this trust that God is so big and so great and so knowledgeable that God would, first of all, God is bigger than their condition of slavery and that God would set them free. They didn't know how, didn't know when, but that God would do it. And a story that comes to mind is um, a story about a hundred year old man, a slave named um, Uncle Silas. And on a Sunday morning, the preacher was giving the typical slaves obey your master uh, sermon. And this hundred-year-old slave walked to the front of the church, which, first of all, he just didn't do, and then began to question the preacher. He said, "Are we going to be free in heaven?" And of course, of course, the 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 preacher is, is kind of stuck. Right. If he, he says no, then what's all this talk about salvation and the goodness and grace of God? He says, "Yes, you're going to be free in heaven." Well, everybody knows the Lord's Prayer. Um, yeah. on earth as it is in heaven, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's kind of stuck. So there's a pause. And then the preacher just continues the sermon. And then this slave, um, this old man interrupts again. I said, are we going to be free in heaven? And then he tries to give some explanation about salvation, and the slave says, well, is there going to be some freedom with that salvation? <laughs> and there's no response. And the preacher just goes back to a sermon and, and totally doesn't respond to this slave. But this old man, the story goes, just stood there at the front of the church, stood there and just stared at the preacher. Like, just this defiance, this, this trust. It's like, I know you hear me, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that you may not acknowledge the truth, but this is truth. And I'm standing here. I don't have to try to force or make you believe it, but I'm going to stand in this truth, trusting God to bring our freedom about. Um, And I, Mm -hmm. I love that story.
0: Well, and I love that idea of, The the reality of, I mean, that man did not have any power Mm -hmm. in that moment, but he had truth. And I I think that this is too, I think for followers of Jesus Christ, we don't understand that enough. We expect power and truth. And that is is not, it 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 is not the witness of scripture Um yeah. that, you know, the disciples, Jesus, I mean, he could have, Jesus could have had power, destructive power over people, but he, but he didn't because destructive power is not the way of the kingdom. And so, you know, Jesus stood in truth. He spoke truth. And, and I mean, what he had the power to do was not resist death and not be stopped by any of the threats that normally cause people to swallow their truth and I, mm-hmm. and I think you know for too long the church has demanded you know worldly power and truth and is sort of shaved the edges off of truth in order to have worldly power and you know we just can't we we don't get we don't get that i mean that we have the power to lay down our lives that's the power which is really w- what that man is doing at the front of the church is laying mm-hmm. down his life and mm-hmm. daring the preacher to take it mm-hmm. i i'm daring you to use the kind of power you have standing there in the house of the Lord and um,
1: yeah. There yeah, there've been times in my life where i sought out a uh, therapist. And one of the things that I appreciate and love and celebrate about a good therapist is that they help you see the truth about your life. Because we can run with a certain kind of narrative and they, they, we, we pay them, <laughs> we pay mm-hmm. them to show us the truth and that truth. Um, and, and, and there's, there's, there's a trusting relationship there. And so even when that truth is painful on the other side of that, it's freeing. I, I, I can just recall mm-hmm. so many times when I left. An office, a therapist' office, feeling lighter, freer, stronger. Yeah. And what if, as a society, we could um, receive <laughs> that kind of truth? T- tell, tell me the truth about myself, um, as as hard as it might be to hear, because I trust that on the other side of that, I'll be freer, lighter, stronger. We're just not there yet, but. Um,
0: well, and I think the connection for me too is just thinking about a lot of times when we're stuck in these situations, and it's and it's us and them, and so of course in our in our view we have truth and they are they are um, worshiping lies, right? Like that—that's just our perspective that we're stuck in. And then what's so frustrating about that is we are stuck waiting on them to change, right? Like if if they would just stop worshiping lies. And if they would simply repent and acknowledge truth, then we would be okay. And so part of the frustration is we can't do anything because we are held hostage by their, I mean, this is all, I'm air quoting all of this, Mm -hmm. by their love of lies, right? And I think maybe part of the truth is recognizing like, hey, but, but even if that's so, which there's no way it's that simple, but even if that's so, the work that we have to do in that moment is to look at the truth of the um, pride and hate and contempt and disgust that is in our hearts mm. for our brothers and sisters and say, okay, i don't I don't have the power or really the responsibility to deliver them from their love of lies but I do have, the power in Christ and the responsibility to notice what's in my own heart, mm. to recognize that it is anti-gospel, to recognize that if I follow Jesus Christ who hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them for their sins, they know what they do. If that is the pattern that I'm conforming to, then I've got plenty to worry about by looking at my own heart and saying like, I know I'm supposed to love my brothers and sisters. And I know that I don't, like, I know that I'm mad and I'm angry and I'm resentful. And I feel like they don't deserve God's grace and they don't deserve my friendship. And I'm pissed off that they're messing up my, you know, right. So like I have plenty of work to do Mm. in my own self and I, I do think that that actually, to your point, like is freeing because then we recognize that we do, you know, have some agency in how we grow in this situation that is not dependent on whatever anybody else does, but it's just to say, if I decide to embrace the hate and the otherness in my heart, the fear, the contempt for my brother and sister, if I decide to do that, that's not their fault. That that's not their choice. That's my choice. So I have plenty of, you know, prayerful spiritual work to do to say, I can own my, my sin in this situation, which is, you know, which is Cain's sin, which is anger at my brother getting something that I feel like they don't deserve when I, you know, whatever. So, um, I do think that can be a, a catalyst, transformative moment. So, anyway, what are you thinking about? We all this. Our questions are becoming less and less relevant in this pandemic. It's just, <laughs> all those forms and structures are gone.
1: Well, I'm thinking about a meeting of our presbytery recently. I believe it was last week. Yes. and yep. Yeah, well... Listen and and I'm, I' I, I want to walk softly here um, because our presbytery is attempting to lean into the issue of racial justice, racial reconciliation, being anti racist white supremacy and white supremacy. white yes. supremacy. Yes. And um so the presbytery is um, putting together, um a program a plan and requiring pastors to attend uh meetings for uh some anti-racism training. Yay. Once every
0: 3 years. Once
1: every 3 years. I applaud that. Yay, celebrate that. I think we need to lean into it. Um I remember being in seminary and hearing all of the stories about um Male pastors abusing uh, not only par- parishioners but um, clergy women, and and it was no surprise to me that once I was ordained, that I had to attend boundary training. I, I think that's a good thing. I celebrate that. We need that. But when it comes to this uh, anti-racism training, I am I'm I'm a little cautious for two reasons, Uh, as much as I support the idea of it. um, Because I've been in these kinds of situations before. And number one, I'm concerned about um, the re-traumatization of black folks. I've been in those kinds of environments where It's just for other people, for some people, for many people, for white people, a lot of history is theory or just history for many African-Americans. It's, it's ever present, um, cloud it's ever present, um, trauma it's ever present, um, thought uh, mindset right it's it's not something you ever leave and so to be in an environment like I I have a really difficult time uh, like watching a slave movie I I just I can't do it
0: yeah
1: Um, and so I'm concerned about that Um, and and I, I hope I need to speak with someone because I hope that they take steps to ensure that that doesn't happen, right? And so, if you have a group of, let's say, thirty pastors, you need to have more than one or two African American folks in there, right? Uh, my other concern is, you know, since we are um, a fairly left-leaning progressive denomination, and I am, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for white allies. I'm grateful for white pastors who march with Black Lives Matter. I'm I'm grateful for that. Um, But because the devil is tricky Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and sin is what it is, sin, like Mm -hmm. the coronavirus, has a tendency to morph and become Mm -hmm. something else. As soon as you shine a light on it, Mm -hmm. it can become something else and so i'm concerned that that um that that anti racism energy might become a um let me prove how woke i am energy mm-hmm. and yeah. so it, it may morph into a conversation um about who's more who's more who's more woke in the room. And so and 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 it'll, I don't know. That that's just my concern. And yep. I, I need to speak with those who are putting it together. Um and and, and maybe they've already started to address that. And um but I'm but I'm just very concerned about those things.
0: Well and I think like when you and I were talking about this before, um I mean, A, when that came up at the meeting, it was not without controversy. And it was in exactly the way that you named that um the concern that was voiced from the floor was uh some of us won't need to do this every three years. Mm-hmm. And you know, so so right there it wasn't someone who said, I'm against anti-racism training. It was someone that my what I heard this person say was, I am so committed to the cause that this is too um, basic for me. Mm-hmm. It is, um, you know, it it, is, it will just become um, performative and rote, and 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 so there's no need. Again, I mean, I hope I'm being generous, but but what I heard expressed was, you know, it, some of us won't need to be there every three years. So, so why? It, and so the, the challenge is, you know, it it is expressed by someone who who sincerely, authentically supports the stated goals of mm-hmm. anti-racism but does not understand themselves as being any part of the problem. And so if someone, if a a person of color is in that room with their own experience of what it's like to be in community with such a person, and then that person is in force, compelled to be in that same circle, then I mean, exactly what we're talking about happens, which is Around that circle, people can look someone in the face and say, I know better than you (laughs) what your experience is being a part of this community. And so, so then that means that the person who, you know, it's just their truth is, you know, the truth of their life is being gaslit and, and not at, you know, a unite the right rally, but, you know, in the room of this you know, progressive, whatever, if the label is progressive or left-leaning, I would say gospel, you know, I mean, these are gospel, these are kingdom values, right? Mm -hmm, Like the kingdom value mm of, you know, so, so I think that that's just sort of like this meta hurt that it, that makes it so difficult, so painful, untenable for, you know, if a person of color is sitting in that circle, there's no good choice. Like there's the choice of just swallow it because I can't, I don't want to expend the emotional energy to do, you know, or to, you know, put something hard and real and vulnerable out there and potentially have it rejected. I mean, like, there's just no good choice. And I think like for, for, I mean, as a white woman, I think that for white people to show up for an anti-racism training with the knowledge that it is going to be uncomfortable for us and that it needs to be uncomfortable for us because there's no way I mean to all of our other conversation there's no way that we can confront the truth of how bad it is and expect to be comfortable right so so for white people in that space to be uncomfortable i think that's just you know a prerequisite of spiritual growth <laughs> but i think it is hard if my colleagues of color already have to walk around in the damn world navigating this stuff all the time and then and then are you know are compelled to show up in a circle and endure that kind of discomfort that is not going to lead to spiritual growth because it's not you don't you know you don't need to be educated about how bad yes. it is and it's for my benefit i mean it's for the well, benefit of the people yeah
1: yes and i think going back to our earlier conversation about truth, both groups, everybody needs truth in this area. Right. right? But I think the needs are different. Mm -hmm. So years ago I pastored a church, historically African-American church that had a relationship with a very affluent, large, historically white church, very affluent one of the most affluent in the city. And annually, we did things together. And I watched the members of our congregation, in the context of this relationship with this other church, often shut down, defer to The folks in that other church not truly be themselves, not take on leadership, right? And so there's an issue there. There's some truth that needs to be confronted, and that's different than the kind of truth telling, truth confronting, truth receiving that um, white people need. And so i I think there is painful truth that we all need to sit with, embrace. Let's set us free. I, I don't know if that can happen in the same space at Agreed. the same time, yeah. right?
0: I mean, I definitely like. There are there are a significant number of um, clergy in the Presbytery of Charlotte who are people of color, and it's not that there isn't a necessity of of. I mean, I think of coming together and saying, how do we navigate this destructive death dealing system of white supremacy as we do the work of the gospel, right? Like, how do we do that work? But the the challenge of that for people of color is just a different challenge than for white people, right? Like we have different different battles. And I do think, I mean, like to me, a situation like this, like a racial affinity group to do that work in racial mm-hmm. affinity groups, I think really makes sense. Like, I don't want people of color to have to show up in those groups and de facto serve the needs of the white people in that group, even mm-hmm. as the group is there ostensibly and realistically to dismantle white supremacy. So like, what does that look like? Like I do, and I listen, I definitely think that people of color need to be leading in a in a group about anti-racism training and white supremacy. I just think that they need to be compensated for their time and, and be there as, as leaders, as people who are paid and expected to serve the needs of white people, as opposed to people who show up and are asked to sit in a seat where they will get training and end up being expected to be the de facto trainers. Right. And like, that's not, you know, that's not right. Um, and I do think like, that's just the, the problem with, again, like the truth, it is, it is badder than we think it is it is deeper than we think it is like we think like oh sure those churches over there they've got problems but we don't have problems cuz look we have leadership you know people in leadership who are black and people in leadership who are latino and we have a church what we you know support black lives matter so like we don't have a problem in here and the reality is we have huge problems in our system and and huge mm-hmm. problems in our communities not because people are garbage and need to be like, that's not it. It's just, just because you, you hate white supremacy and you recognize it as, Mm -hmm. as antichrist that doesn't mean you're immune from being possessed by it. And like, that's really, I mean, like, Oh, does that grieve me so deeply? It really, really does.
1: Um, I've been, I've been reading the biography and um, the diary of, Lemuel Haynes, who was the first African-American to pastor a historically white church. This was um, just after the Revolutionary War, 1778, something like that. Wow. Um, he, uh, I think he was born into slavery and was freed. as a, a young man. Um, he's considered a Puritan preacher. He fought in the Revolutionary War um, and <laughs> In his diary, he says something like, you know, the first, the first, and he pastored more than one uh, white congregation. The first one, he said, they hated his guts. He's like, and he said, he said, he said, they wanted to do awful things to me. And he said, it was only the Holy Spirit that kept them from doing what they wanted. And then he he went. I think he was in Connecticut and pastored another church for maybe um, like twenty years. It was a it was a good while. And the reason I bring that up is because in the Peace USA, uh, which is a predominantly, overwhelmingly white institution, more and more as this institution declines in terms of numbers, African Americans are being called upon. Yeah. Into leadership positions, into high leadership positions, and uh, at the congregational level, and there's there's some there's some things we have to work through if we're going to lead effectively. And there's some there's some trauma that has to be worked through. I know I, I certainly I don't share with my congregation. As a matter of fact, I don't, I don't share with um, very many people at all. Um, actually, <laughs> none. The 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 internal struggle I have Um, not every day, but there are these times and seasons and occasions where I clearly see that emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, I'm, I'm bumping up against um, my own trauma, the country's history in, and it's just very real. And I, I think if if African Americans are going to be called upon, and other people of color are going to be called upon to lead in this denomination, then there's just got to be some work there. There's there's some truth that needs to be exposed. And I I, I feel that uh, deeply. I know this is true for my own life and work. Uh, there's go ahead.
0: I just was gonna say, you know, one thing that I see that I really just think is dangerous and unhealthy um, is there's so much pride, there's so much self-referential pride within our denomination, looking at um, the the number of uh, people of color who have been called into these roles of prominence and power and leadership um and i mean i i am grateful for it i celebrate it i do think it is a movement of the holy spirit but there's zero reason to be proud about it because to your point uh, our denomination is undeniably in decline um and you know it just bef- before you get prideful about it you could remember that when you're when your local church and when your denomination was in the eyes of the culture on the way up and, and had lots of power and that, you know, that there was no way that you were calling people of color into those roles, even though it's not like the gospels changed. It's not like the values of the kingdom have changed. Right. So let's just be acknowledge that um part of the reason that we, you know, we have not had, a Damascus Road experience. We've not really done any public um deep soul searching of repentance. And you know, we just have gotten to a point where we're realizing like, oh oh (laughs) oh-ish, like we we can't, you know, we're we're at the edge of the cliff. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Um mm -hmm. a lot of the people that we probably in our hearts of hearts would like to have in those roles no longer are interested in them because Mm -hmm. they're not prestigious and powerful in the ways that they used to be and so so now um bodies you know call committees are beginning to look at candidates who they normally would not would have overlooked or would not have looked at or their pool isn't who they you know so i just think like it's just important to sort of acknowledge that with some deep humility of like it, it's not that it's not that white people gave up power you know out of out of love For the Holy Spirit, or out of conviction, right? Like, we if 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 things could have continued on in the seventies, eighties, nineties, and aughts as they were in the fifties and sixties, every person, every white person, would have chosen to have that happen. And it's because you know the system began to just you know the 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 rot in the system began to be visible that people Mm -hmm. were then saying like, oh, we we need we need a different choice and so like whatever like we're all sinners like Mm -hmm. that's not Mm -hmm. you know it's just it's humanity and 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 there's no reason to but i mean i'm just saying like let's not be proud like let's not re-spin it as like oh we're so progressively wonderful (laughs) and we have these values and aren't we great like we don't need to take a lap in this that's right
1: (laughs) well and look yes representation matters representation in leadership matters so it matters that people of color are in leadership positions and we have to wrestle with how much of the system is still left in place and we're simply asking people of color to conform to that system that that's what i wrestle with like i know how to I know how to wear khakis and a Ralph Lauren shirt and, you know, show up in a way that's non-threatening. And I have to yeah. wrestle with how much of that is my personal nerdy style? How much of that is my, okay, I just need to get, a you know, a foot in the door. I need, I just need to get in. Yeah,
0: privatism. Yeah. Yes.
1: And then how much of that is, okay, I am not, I'm conforming too much to the way things are. Right. Uh, and and that's that's a constant battle um yeah. that I personally have.
0: Yeah. No, I, I well, I'll just share because this will bring it full circle that what I am thinking about today was actually something I read um from a, a friend who's who's preached a couple of times for me at um at the Grove. And I, I really appreciate um I really appreciate him and his voice in the um in the community. Um his name is Cedric Lundry and he's a um a pastor and does uh runs a nonprofit educational college prep. I should really understand more about his organization, so I'm gonna get on that. But um he he I'm just trying to find it right now because I want to quote him directly and not quote my my memory of him. Um, but he He was posting something this morning that I really um, that I think is is pertinent to everything that we've been talking about. okay, so he and and he is a black man who has often served in um, predominantly historically white Christian institutions. Um And in fact, he and a friend have a great podcast called Token Confessions. Mm. But you should look it up and follow it and everyone can figure out (laughs) why, why (laughs) did they name their podcast that Um, they're both black men who have served in predominantly white Christian organizations, token confessions, but so his, his comment was this. Simply loving people who are different than you doesn't solve white supremacy and racism any more than men loving women solves patriarchy and sexism. You have to actually learn how white supremacy works and functions so that you can intentionally resist and dismantle it. Loving people who are different than me when I'm the one the system favors is not furthering a solution. It's seeking my own absolution from being associated with it while letting it run unfettered or undeterred. And okay. I think, you know, that is so pertinent to everything that we're talking about today that, mm-hmm. you know, I think white people want to come around in a room and not even do anti-racism work. We we want to come around a room and be told, um, you're the good kind. We're not talking about you. You're not the problem. We love you. Now go back and live your life exactly as you were before, but don't worry about anything anymore. You're not the problem. And mm-hmm. and and we can sincerely love individual, you know, like that, that's the Quote of like, my best friend is black. I'm married to a black man. I can't be racist. I mean, do you, is it true that you love people of color? Yes. Is it true that you reject prejudice? Yes. But we're in a system that is designed to favor white people. So, so there's nothing, if you're white, you're favored by the justice system, by the educational system, by the financial system, by the church. I mean, like, you, you are. So you can be, um, you know, you can be cognizant of that fact or not, but it doesn't change the reality of of the current power structures in our crumbling society. And loving people who are being abused and disfavored by the system, that doesn't get them justice. That doesn't help their pain. And so I, I think that that is the point is to be able to say, loving people is not the end of the story. Now, it's not not important. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not either or, but it has to be both and. And I can't love you if I say, like, you know, good luck. Hope the police don't stop you on the street and harm you. I, like, if I'm indifferent to that or if all I think is, like, hope it doesn't happen, that's not loving of you or anyone.
1: Yeah, and I think that's so challenging for white people, um, especially because for many, if not most um american democracy white supremacy and a form of christianity are are kind of bound together absolutely and to, and to untie that knot right to distinguish those cords is really difficult because there's a kind of you know <laughs> pardon pardon my language here there, there's a kind of colorblindness so that all yeah. those strands look the same and so for someone like me to criticize one right it's like we got to pull this white supremacy out mm-hmm. they're like wait a minute you you're you're criticizing the church you're criticizing democracy and and that that was um that's that was really the foundation of of the uh, lawyers for uh, the former president during the impeachment trials. Like, hey, these people are saying that, you know, the country's just racist and what, I'm like, wow, they have a hard time distinguishing Christianity from American democracy from white supremacy because it's just all yeah. bound together.
0: Well, and that's the whole backlash against Colin Kaepernick, right? Like, mm-hmm. That's you, right. You are peacefully protesting police brutality, but I mean, but you can't do that without also spitting on the graves of soldiers and saying that you want to be a communist social, right? Because it's so wound up for us that what we want to believe is that what we have is simply if not, um if not, if you don't want to believe it's okay, then you at least want to believe that what we have is just the best that is possible. So you mm-hmm. need to um, get on board with it and I, and, and respect it and honor it, Mm -hmm. um, as, and be grateful for it, even if it's literally killing you. And that's, um, anyway, well, friend, what are you preaching about this week?
1: Well, um, we started, uh, we were having a conversation before we hit the record button. (laughs) about how I stunk up the video this past week oh. with a sermon. I was so excited about the subject, I was excited about the text. I was preaching Isaiah 40 um in the series called Pandemic Emotions, just dealing with the, you know, the emotional stuff, the emotional baggage of this pandemic in the season and was looking at fatigue which I'm feeling uh, quite a bit of in the season and The study went well. My outline in my head was super exciting. And yet when I got down to writing, I used a whole lot of words and said very little. And so it was just really disappointing. And um, I am just trying to get over my disappointment. And today um, I'm, I'm just not gonna think about Sunday. This is Monday morning. And I think I'm gonna wait until tonight or tomorrow morning to start thinking about, okay, next Sunday. So at this point, I don't know. It will be in that series of pandemic emotions. I'm just not sure which emotion we're going to look at this week. Regret. Regret, <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, that's good. I mean. Actually.
0: It's, it's a real thing that people uh, are dealing with right now. One,
1: one thing I have on the list is guilt. Yeah. And sure. uh, that came up in our small group last week, uh, someone said, hey, in your sermon, you said we shouldn't feel guilty about our grief. It's like, i that doesn't make sense to me. Why would anyone feel guilty? And um, one of the things I want to say to people in relation to guilt is that at the beginning of this pandemic, I don't know about everyone else, but I certainly had a lot of ideas about all the things I was going to accomplish while being at home and have done You know, very few of those things.
0: I know. And so there's a tendency
1: to say, okay, look, you suck more than you thought you did before. I mean,
0: (laughs) All these years, all these years, we've been looking at the difference between the life that we want and the life that we have. And then saying like, well, if everybody else would just leave me alone, (laughs) (laughs) what I would do. Right? (laughs) Like if people would stop making me go to these stupid meetings and people would stop wasting my time, blah, blah, blah. And then now, you know, one of the things that has happened to this pandemic is our bluff has been called and we've had sort of nothing but agency and time. And turns out I still didn't write the book. I still didn't, you know, (laughs) exercise every day. I still didn't like recover this deep, you know, I still didn't sit around, linger around the dinner table and just talk to my kids about how they're feeling and family game night. And like all these things that I'm like, (laughs) man, the world just won't let me be great. And these past months, the world oh, has let me be great, and still, I failed. I'm yeah. not. turns out maybe all this time the problem was me. Shut up, Tony Robbins. Yeah. So,
1: <laughs> so
0: I yeah. I, so I what are what like are you
1: preaching that. this Sunday?
0: Um. Well, I mean, one of the things that's interesting for me about this Ravi Zacharias thing is, like, I'm in the middle of a sermon series on evangelism, um, and so it was really interesting. Like, I think that news really broke on Friday, and I had already recorded the sermon and. Uh, You know, but that's just, it is so hard to wrestle with how to do this well and honorably in a way that heals and builds up the kingdom when people, I mean, and I'm people, like I, when such great destruction.
1: You are people.
0: I I am people. So I'm not just (laughs) saying like, I'm not saying like everything would be fine if, certain, you know, I, I, whatever. I, I just, I think that's really hard. I think a lot of the reasons that there's so many, um, I mean, there are a lot of, um, on, uh, like there are a lot of reasons we avoid evangelism that are not respectable and are not, you mm-hmm. know, pretty. Um, so I'm just going to put that out there, but I mean, there, there is a real sense that, a lot of the reason that sincere reason that people are so deeply uncomfortable and hesitant about sharing their faith or about you know wanting to share the story of their life with Jesus is just an awareness of what great destruction has happened um, in you know in the hands of people who claim to be sharing the good news of the gospel. And so, what do we do with that, right? I mean, and I don't think the answer is to stop opening the doors of our community and inviting people in. And I don't think that the answer is to stop, you know, preaching the gospel and sharing the values of our community outside. But, you know, it's just, it's hard. Like that, that's just really, um, anyway, but I, (laughs) what I'm preaching about, I I think still Monday morning, but I think I'm preaching, um, about interruptions and being interruptible and, um. But, and you know prioritizing people and individuals over um programs and goals and appearance um mm. you know uh, um and i i'm gonna i think i'm gonna use the second half of the prodigal son story so this past week i just preached about the son who left and so this week this idea of like how does the the father deal with the son who's just not on board mm-hmm. <laughs> and um and leaving the party and going to um you know going to enter into um relationship with with that child and um so anyway i am I'm, I'm still mulling over all of that but i think um especially that idea which is all right there in the story of you know it's the leaving the 99 to go after the one And then you know that's what you see at the end of the prodigal the story we call the prodigal son which i have to stop calling it that is that the father you know leaves the big party leaves the big celebration to go after the one and and the one that you know the father chased was not the the son who left home but the son who stayed at home so anyway i I think that's
1: what i like about that text and you're right jesus didn't say let me tell you the story of the prodigal son. I mean, that's that's our label for it. But right. um, I don't remember who I heard this from, but uh, someone said, if you look up the definition of the word prodigal, it doesn't mean what we think it means. We think it means uh, someone who is morally wayward. Right. The word prodigal just means extravagant, whether yeah. it's Re- morally yeah. right or morally reckless. Um, and so every person in the text is in some way a prodigal the the younger right. brother, the father with his grace, and the the older brother with his refusal to um welcome home.
0: yeah no it, it is a I mean as is true of all of Jesus's parables like they just are so um you can't stop thinking about them. Like mm. You can't stop wondering because, you know, as I was working with the, the first half of the story this week, you know, I, again, like, I think that the, the love of the father, the welcoming home of the father is definitely what we are called to, to imitate and to, um, but I mean, it's problematic. Like it's problematic the way that, that the father, um, you know, it, it, it accepted the younger son's request to have his inheritance earlier that's problematic it's problematic the way that the father welcomed the son back in um just in terms of health and growth and risk and boundaries and i mean i just Mm -hmm. i think you know it's clear to it's clear to me that 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 is that jesus is talking to us about how how um dangerous grace is or not how unsafe grace is grace mm. is not safe mm. and i think that's really clear in, in this story because it it is it very easy for people to imagine um you know situations in their lives when someone who loved them or someone they loved really um you know abused them in the name of that love or put them in unsafe safe situations in the name of anyway so i just
1: i heard a psychologist uh, say something like Um, And maybe they were speaking to me. Um, You think you're afraid of people doing bad things to you, but really you're afraid that you won't be able to handle it. I can't, I'm not saying it exactly right. It's, it's, people are going to do things that are wrong. The issue is, can't, can you handle it? And I think- The prodigal son story is so wild because the father is basically communicating, I am big enough to handle the worst <laughs> that my right. children do. And right. I'm big enough to still love them. And right. I think the we often want to go first to, okay, we got to be like that. And I think the first move is, We have to receive that. We have to receive that kind of, I'm loved so much that the dumbest, um, most irresponsible.
0: And destructive. Mean,
1: destructive thing that I've done can be swallowed up by grace.
0: Well, I do do actually like the context of, you know, God's goodness. I mean, has a counter move to our destructiveness. So Mm. it's not just that. The son is home and now he gets the run of the house. I mean we, we don't know kind of what you know we don't know like if if he will after the party but I think that idea oh can you not hear me now
1: you you were leaning on your microphone. Sorry.
0: <laughs> um I think just the idea that um that the welcome home is the first step and then that God can be God in the household no matter who is welcomed at the table and anyway we this is this podcast is way too long we need to stop talking no. i'm tired of this i'm not tired of talking to you i just am uh, i i i am projecting the people who are sitting around the table being like okay oh, hey guys you, you hit your stride <laughs> enough thank you look at to me this conversation off mike i i i'm i'm calling it okay you're laughing so i'm just going to take that as agreement um Thanks for listening. If you still are, <laughs> we really want to um, encourage you to check out Yolando's um, sermons. You can check out Derita Pres D E R I T A P R E S dot org is their website, and you can go to the Podbean uh, uh, website and look at the Derita Church podcast, and you can worship with Dorita Church at any time on Sundays on their YouTube channel, the Dorita Presbyterian Church YouTube channel. And if you want to learn more about the Grove, you can go to thegrovecharlotte.org. You can listen to Sermons the Grove at um, the Grove Church podcast on iTunes. Or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can worship with us on Sunday mornings um, on our Facebook live stream at 10 o'clock. It's pretty fun. The music is pretty incredible. The community is beautiful, and it would be better with one more person in it. So, hope you can join us. Thank you for listening, and we will talk maybe a little less next week. Okay, bye. <laughs>